My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by Carlo Lancelotti. Uh, he is a professor of mathematics at the College of Staten Island uh, and on the Faculty of Physics at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and one of the world's foremost experts in the work of philosopher Augusto del Noche, whose works he translated into English um, and available currently are The Crisis of Modernity, The Age of Secularization, and The Problem of Atheism. Welcome, Carlo. Oh, thank you, Alex. It's, a, it's lovely to have you here. Um, I have to say I was uh, quite, so the work of, of Del Noche is quite new to me. Um, one of the fans of the show has alerted me to uh, both uh, Augusto Del Noche and obviously to your work tied into it. Um, this is probably not uh, surprising to you because you you were essentially the, uh, the force behind bringing Del Noche into the wider Western consciousness. He's a well-known figure in, in, in Italy and France, I think, but wasn't that well-known in the West. Um, mm-hmm. what, what attracted you to Del Noche? What, what made you think that he's, a, um, he's the kind of figure that uh, the, the wider West needs to hear about uh, at, this, at this juncture in history? Well, um, you know, Del Noche died in 1989, uh, and he lived through what we can call the golden age of ideology in Western Europe, meaning that he was born in 1910, then he saw the rise of fascism as a young man, then World War II, and then the big uh, neo-Marxist wave after World War II, the Cold War, the 1968, the Red Brigades, you know, all the, the, the third Marxist wave in Italy. So his thought is shaped by ideological issues and by the problem of totalitarianism, if you wish. And I have been living in the United States uh, since 1990. And one striking aspect of living in, growing up in Italy and then living in the U.S. is how there are some eerie similarities between certain, again, ideological trends that I can see today and some of the trends that Del Noche witnessed in his lifetime. And, and this is why, you know, in, in some respects, Del Noche is sometimes strangely prophetic, not because he was a prophet, but because he was witnessing certain phenomena that to some extent with obvious differences are repeating today, I think, to some extent. So that 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 um, I mean, I personally always I felt that in this in this for this reason, sometimes my American friends were a little bit innocent about, say, ideology, totalitarianism, the nature of Marxism as a philosophy, uh, also, for example, the philosophical implications of the sexual revolution and gender-related movements. And there was a lesson to be learned from European history, because in some ways, I think secularization unfolded 
later in the U.S. in its political expressions. I mean, you know, the, the notion thought that uh, both uh, ideological thinking and totalitarianism were expressions, essentially, of secularization. Uh, that when people kind of give up on God, <clears throat> they have to turn to politics and by, by certain logical necessity. And uh, this happened earlier in Europe and later in the English-speaking world, as I was trying to say before. And so this is why I think that there is this strange relevance of the notion to the current Western situation. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, uh, it absolutely does. Um, I think he, um, I, I took this out of the um, the first book, I think you um, you translated, which is the, the Crisis of Modernity, which is a kind of a, compendium of essays that you've curated yourself uh, kind of as an introduction to Del Noche. Um, and I think here he, he mentions the idea that um, modernity must be regarded as the period in which the phenomenon of atheism manifested itself and burned itself out. I mm-hmm. thought this very, uh, a very profound statement. Could you, could you expand on that a little bit? So it is kind of the, the completion of the, the, the rationalist ratchet from Descartes up to up to that point. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, in order to understand the, that statement, you have to put it on the background of what the kind of standard narratives about modernity have been since, say, the French Revolution. And there is what I can call a secular progressive narrative in which modernity is this break with the past that began with the Enlightenment and is moving towards a greater and greater <clears throat> political and scientific and technological progress. Uh, and so there is, any and, and, and it, it is understood as a process of inevitable secularization, that basically as mm, society moves towards uh, technology and freedom, uh, necessarily the space of uh, religion shrinks. Uh, so there is this idea of inevitability, that the, the modernity is this inevitable process, basically of moving away from transcendence towards a, a humanized, secular world. But then, um, the notion was a Catholic thinker, by the way, uh, as you probably noticed, and um, the standard response to, um, to this secular progressive myth of modernity, mythology of modernity, was what the Notre calls the Catholic Romantic view of modernity as this uh, process of inevitable decline. Uh, you know, like from first the end of the Middle Ages, nominalism, then from medieval nominalism to the Reformation, from the Reformation to the Enlightenment, from the Enlightenment to Marx, from Marx to us uh, in, in, in a process of inevitable decline. Now, the Notre was kind of skeptical because this is like the same view as the secular view, except that uh, with a ma- minus sign instead of a plus sign. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? There, there is still the, the myth of modernity as this inevitable process, uh, this grand historical narrative charged with meaning, with this, uh, except instead of marching towards heaven, it marches towards hell, so to speak. Del Noche felt that modernity was not such a univocal process. He says that it is the period simply in which uh, a critique of Christianity was formulated and in which Christianity had to answer, 
right? And so he sees modernity as a as a double phenomenon in which there is, uh, for the first time after the Middle Ages, people started calling into question, say, the Christianity of transcendence, the notion that we are fallen, um, the fact that we are made in the image of God. You know, there are all these uh, philosophical and theological ideas that are politically relevant. You know, they're not just religious doctrines, but they form a worldview. And the notion is that in modernity is when uh, this worldview was challenged. And this is what it means by the expansion of atheism, because for him, atheism is a post-Christian phenomenon. The, the atheism, you know, today could not have existed before Christianity, because it's defined precisely by denying those Christian ideas. On the other hand, he also thinks that uh, modernity is the time in which Christianity had to answer. And this answering actually created new thought, new ideas, and and the possibility of purifying and clarifying uh, the Christian worldview, for him, the Catholic worldview. Um, so much so that, I mean, the Noche tends to interpret this in terms of the history of philosophy because he was a professional philosopher, so he looks you know, at the big European thinkers as a reference, and he identifies not one line from Descartes to Hegel to Marx to Nietzsche down the atheistic path, but two lines. I mean, uh, there is also what he calls a um, mostly continental French and Italian line of philosophy that through people like Pascal, uh, Vico and Rosmini in Italy, and then in France, Maritain, Dusson, and Neo-Thomism, and all kinds of thinkers picked up the challenge of modernity, the, the challenge of 18, so to speak, and, 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 and renewed, correspondingly, a Christian worldview. So he, he proposes a more nuanced interpretation. But recognizing that, yes, uh, without being inevitable, the modern age is the age in which the world has challenged the Christian worldview. Yeah, so, so the response that Nietzsche gave is, is rather well known, but the other uh, response to modernity, I think it's uh, uh, Rosmini you, you mentioned as well, that, that is kind of a, a more, um, it, it's still a religious worldview. So um, I, I wonder if you could expound on that, because essentially what, what we're trying to uncover in this, uh, in this podcast is, you know, uh, also um, more productive avenues. There's a lot of, um, a lot of dead ends, which is it's easy to find. Uh, but I, I wonder what a, a more, um, I don't know, integral uh, perspective on, on modernity could be. You know, what, what is the next, the next step uh, on that line of thinking? Well, I mean, Del Noche believes that in modernity there was one important positive development, which he says as follows. It is the period in which it became clear that uh, uh, the, the dialectic, so to speak, connects between truth and freedom, meaning that uh, in the Middle Ages people um, emphasize the authority of truth. But they didn't problematize, you know, they, they didn't call into question the fact that the form in which truth can be truly accepted as truth by us. And this is freedom. So the notion says the modernity put, raised the question is, how can truth be truth for me? 
uh, religious truth, philosophical truth, in very, I'm talking in very general terms. And, and, and this is why for him, the value of modernity is freedom correctly understood. Freedom, not as uh, you do what you want or, or whatever, but freedom as the only possible way in which truth can be welcomed as truth. Truth cannot be really accepted as truth if not through freedom, through the human desire of freedom. And so he, he finds this in a whole range of things. It's not only Rosmini, but Pascal and then uh, the modern, uh, I don't know, good name, Tocqueville. There is a certain type of, you could call it liberalism, but not in the Anglo-Saxon meaning of the word liberalism, more in the, in, 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 in the more continental French, Italian sense. Um, so that to him is the important thing about modernity, to have put the question, to have raised the question of freedom. And so he doesn't think that the response to modernity can be reactionary. Um, because to him, a reactionary is somebody who wants to go back to a utopian past, the, the, a past that cannot come back, reasonably speaking, and that probably n never existed because even the Middle Ages, at their share of troubles, <laughs> and and so the, the the question is not to be uh, reactionary, but the question is to really discover tradition to address new questions. I mean, uh, that case, uh, the question of political freedom, the question of living in a pluralistic society. Uh, I don't know. So that that seems to me is the the big topic. The topic of freedom is the modern question, in his opinion. Yeah. And, and what was Del Notch's perspective on, on freedom? What what did freedom look like for him? Well, I mean, he, he would not disagree that freedom is freedom to pursue beauty and truth and, and, and justice. So it cannot just be, you know, the liberal, modern, Anglo-Saxon kind of idea of uh, this atomic individual without any responsibility who can self-determine we can, we can certainly say that's not what he means, but he grew up under fascism and, and you know, and then he, he faced communism. So his idea of freedom, uh, I would say, means that at the political level, uh, free, for the first freedom is freedom of religion, meaning that the people have to be able to pursue the meaning of life, to pursue the truth. Because if, if, they, if they don't accept the truth through a free search is not going to be true. I mean, it's not going to be, it's not going to be the truth. Politically, he was a Christian Democrat. You know, after World War II, he had all these political parties in, in, in Europe who tried to rebuild uh, after the war, uh, in a sense, trying to strike a, a compromise between Christianity and democracy. Yeah, that, that's that's basically uh, where I would put him, a form of moderate uh, liberalism that emphasizes that um, the, the thing he says also is that, you know, from a Christian, political Christianity cannot but be affected by the fact, by the doctrine of uh, grace, right? The, 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 the fact that, uh, that, uh, that God wants us to accept him freely, right? The nature that grace offers itself to nature freely, not imposing itself. Uh, this means, for example, that he would not accept the confessional state. 
I mean, he, 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 Del Noche would think that it, that it would be a betrayal of religion because what what he says talking about Dante, for example, is that um, once uh, one tries to establish a confessional state, what happens is that the church becomes a tool of the state. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the, the the idea of a certain kind of is a certain type of integralism that thinks that, in a sense, the the state should be at the service of the church. But the uh, Noja thinks that because of our fallen state, of our cupiditas, our greed, uh, every attempt to uh, use the state as a tool of the church always turns the church into a tool of the state. So that, that, that's another aspect of his, uh, say, liberalism with quotation marks, that he, 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 he does not believe in a confessional state, for example. I don't know. I'm rambling a little bit. Does that answer? No, no. Yeah, no. I, I I understand that. I think it's it is one of the 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 hardest questions. It's essentially as old as time. You know, who watches the watchers? You know, where does sovereignty lie? Um, the 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 issue that you know the integralists also encounter, and I think you know that Del Noche also grapples with, especially because in the introduction of, uh, of of the first book, you you mentioned that you know he was very much affected by growing up under fascism, the problem of violence as well, um, you know, and seeing that 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 you know in his perspective could not be uh, a part of of the you know the state was, there had to be a better way i guess in in, in some mm-hmm. in some simplified form so um i i can understand that and that's one one of the problems that i think a lot of people who come on this podcast grapple with the the, the issue that a- appears again and again and we see this under liberalism as well is that um the in a way a confessional state is inevitable there is a, a value system that is a value hierarchy that each sort of um, mm-hmm. state uh, embeds in, in one way or another uh, under liberalism. And I think you, you mentioned this as well in the book is uh, it, it kind of has become a form of completed Marxism, kind of Marxism mm-hmm. that has self purified uh, of, of its, uh, you know, um, labor roots and has now just become a, a very, uh, very virulent creed of a certain middle-class to upper-class driver, a caste, uh, and that seems to be, you know, the con- the confessional state that that we live under. And the, the problem with that is that it doesn't actually see itself. It exists mm-hmm. and it kind of runs in the background and it sees itself as common sense. It sees itself mm-hmm. as being on the right mm-hmm. side of history and all of that. So I wonder, has, has Del Noche grappled with the kind of the inevitability of, of, of you know, a value hierarchy in the state? Oh, yeah, I would certainly agree. I mean, Del Noche was, would never buy into the idea that there could be a metaphysically neutral polity. You know, that, that, that he says that every, he goes as far as saying that every human society is based on some religion. Uh, what is at stake is uh, whether from the perspective of a Christian <laughs> uh, perspective, this means that, for example, uh, faith could be imposed or that uh, the extent in which one can coerce, say, religious minorities. or so. That's, but there is no question for him that there is no human society without religion. There is no human society without a, a worldview. It's just inevitable. That's, where you, that's how, the way human beings are hardwired. You know what I mean? That, that we always, even if we don't say it, we always have a certain narrative, a certain image of ourselves, a certain metaphysics. So... 
to him, there is no question. And, and of course, he would completely disagree with the kind of modern Western liberal idea that you can put that into brackets and, and you know, because you're not going to. I mean, and in fact, one of the things that makes him interesting, I think, is it shows how there is all these metaphysical assumptions, for example, behind the sexual revolution, right? Because the, the, the sexual revolution kind of claims to be value-free, and it's not. I mean, and, 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 and the notion says there is a very precise uh, idea of what a human being is, what life is about, what happiness means, for example, right? And, and, there, is, and, 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 and there is no way of escaping that, not that. Uh, that's for sure. But another comment, I think that um, what the Noche has in mind, we're talking about freedom, is also that uh, politics uh, can only be healthy within a certain broader context, right? Which does not have to be, uh, you know, a specific uh, religious creed, but must be at least a consistent ethical, anthropological vision, right? And and if you, some sort of transcendence, something that transcends politics, that goes beyond politics. When you eliminate this, when you eliminate religion in the culture, when you eliminate, again, uh, ethics, when you eliminate uh, metapolitical ideas, politics goes crazy. I mean, or politics becomes a replacement for religion. So, Another problem uh, with the, the, the why the Noche was not, uh, how can I put it, would not call himself an integralist, even if he strongly affirms the integrity of the war vision, you know, the fact that, that you cannot have politics without a religious vision. But the point is that politics has to be put in its place. I mean, because um, what happens... Uh, very often, not always, but often, is that uh, even uh, integralist projects tend to put politics at the center. I mean, at the end of the day, a renewal, Russian was something positive. Uh, the possibility of a renewal will require uh, some genuine religious conversion. I mean, will require some genuine renewal of society before the renewal of politics. So the, the, the question in debate that I see is sometimes, can politics renew society? There is all these people talking about the fact that, you know, that laws are pedagogical, which is true. Uh, and, and the fact that uh, uh, if you if you have that the political power does affect society, that's true too. But there is a long, there is a logical leap to go from that truth to missing the fact that at the end of the day, politics reflects the way a society understands itself, the way people in that society understand themselves. And politics alone, let's put it this way, politics alone uh, will not save us. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that seems to be uh, very clear. And, uh, and so, in, so in a sense, one has to put politics in its place. You know what I mean? Yes, it's it's a it's a hard um, kind of almost like a chicken and egg problem uh, because you know it's a it's so all encompassing and like you said it's kind of an ersatz religion now for a lot of people and it seems to be the tool with which problems are solved especially because 
it is now considered to be downstream from science. You know, we have political science, we have kind of um, uh, algorithmic solutions to everything. And once we find the, the correct solution, there is a correct way of doing politics, the correct way of organizing society, then we don't actually need politics. We just have this, the, the machine running the, the perfect yes, but, yes, but, but you see, there is an analogy what Del Noche said about politics and religion, that when uh, religion tries to dictate politics, then politics will shape religion for the sake of power. The same happens with science. You know, the, 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 the theory is that uh, the experts uh, direct policy, but uh, then what happens is the expertise becomes politicized. You know, we have, we have seen this with the pandemic in many respects we see it every day that since there is politics is about getting and managing power uh, then the purity of science itself will not last very long right i mean because once uh, science becomes the tool for power it will be bent to the needs of power Exactly. Yeah, I think I think we see this in, in in all sorts of ways. In a way, science has become the the kind of enforcement mechanism of the the priestly caste. It's just a legitimating instrument for a lot of stuff that's going on. Like, uh, Absolutely. Um, there's uh you know the, the the probably some surprising changes that I don't know if if Donoche probably intuited the direction that it would go into, uh, but I think we've reached a, a bit of a fever pitch with uh with now you know transitioning uh, with kind of gender theory and and all of these things where um you know you know call it a gnostic heresy or whatever you like it's it's kind of extreme cartesianism where people just completely turn themselves into into customizable uh, meat puppets and kind of reject their worldly being and and try to to become better um i i, I wonder what his perspective would have been on, on what's going on with 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 whatever this is yeah i mean you mentioned narcissism um he, he borrowed from vogel in the idea that you know Marxism and Hegelianism uh, have a Gnostic flavor, although it, it disagreed with Vogelin about if, whether this was really the same as the old Gnosticism of you know ancient times. He thought it is a different phenomenon. But the way he puts it somewhere is that uh, there is this deep-seated idea that <clears throat> in order to be free, there must not nothing given. To yourself, you must create yourself. He quotes uh, often a passage from Marx from the manuscripts of 1844, in which Marx says that if you are created, you cannot be free, right? Because if, if you are created, if you are given, you know, your body is given, your being male or female is given. Um, if if anything in you is given, uh, you cannot be free. Okay, of course, this is an incorrect idea of freedom, but. Uh, it is underlying a lot of these debates. Okay, there is the idea of this radical self-determination, but radical self-determination leaves a complete vacuum <laughs> because when you take away all the givenness, you know, at the end of the day, you become a completely plastic, empty space that can be shaped by by society, by by instinct, by by all these things. So the, I think that Noche identifies the great contradiction of uh, this kind of Gnostic movement, like I think transgenderism in its ideological expression is a neo-Gnostic movement in this contradiction that it affirms freedom as complete independence and non-givenness. 
and then this freedom evaporates, right? I mean, at, at the end of the day, you become completely arbitrarily driven by what? You know, by 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 what people tell you at school, by uh, what you see on TV. You know, I mean, we see all these incredible statistics about people questioning their gender tripling or quadrupling over 10 years. That's obviously a socially induced phenomenon. Is it freedom? Probably yeah. not. You know, I mean, it just it's a. I think uh, at at the end of the day, and and at the at the base level, it it kind of um, at least from my perspective, it comes from the the, the issue that um, you know liberalism promises equality. Equality is a very fuzzy term, and equality is kind of at the at the basis of of what one can expect from the liberal regime. Uh, the the problem is that in in reality and in nature, you know no no human beings are equal in in any dimensions and and also whatever graph you want to take uh you know there's going to be inequality by just by the sheer randomness of uh you know genetics environment whatever you want to call it um the and i think the the, the space where you can have equality is uh, as kind of this instinctive, uh, autonomous, you know, homunculus behind the eyes where you're kind of reduced to, you know, pure mm-hmm. autonomy and you just decide uh, and you're just running on instinct. Um, and I feel like that's that's probably the, the space where you have the most freedom in, the, in that perspective where, you know, we're, we're all the same behind the meat suit. So it's kind of trying to fulfill the promise of equality that's not possible in the real world, in on earth, in this kind of Gnostics realm where, you know, we're, we're kind of, uh, we're kind of given more permissions, more degrees of freedom if we're, um, you know, just a rational chooser behind the eyes uh, without ha- being encumbered by all these unchosen bonds in the, in the real world. Yeah, it's also the promise of radical independence to, to some extent. You know, the fact that uh, cutting all bonds, you know, all ties, as if as if, that's another way of incorrectly expressing freedom. Like freedom is cutting the cutting of bonds, the cutting of ties. While a simple examination of our experience shows that we are free the more bonds we have, right? Like family bonds and social bonds, religious, church bonds. Uh, human beings are the creation of their relationships. I mean, the, the, we, we are our relationships. We are our memories. We have our friends. We have our parents, you know. So it's, it's, it, that's exactly, uh, again, what he means by Gnosticism or nihilism, that if you try to cut the human being from its relationships, there's nothing left. And, and that's manifested in the first epidemics of mental illness, right? I mean, it cannot be by, by coincidence that, that there's all this uh, mental fragility because uh, it is the idea of the homunculus, that the independent, uh, you know, atomic individual is completely abstract, completely ideological, doesn't, doesn't work. And we are seeing the effect of it. Yes, and and completely equal because in, in a way, um, you know, all of these these bonds, you know, family bonds, like you said, church bonds, these are a, a very big and, and important factor in inequality. You know, you hear about uh, men's, you know, boys' clubs and uh, you know nepotism and and all of this stuff that you know 
to be honest, used to just be the way things worked until five minutes ago, just because, you know, you knew someone who could, you know, solve your problem. Uh, now everything has to be open to everyone on the planet uh, and, uh, you know, to, to, to engage in, in competition or not in some ways, you know, in, in quota systems, which is another thing, just, just, you know, redistribute it fairly. So each homunculus gets, gets their slice of the pie uh, and uh, none, none of the homunculi <laughs> are left out. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you, um, because kind of the, the problem of violence keeps, keeps cropping up and uh, I know Del Noche was, was very concerned with this. Uh, I wonder if he's grappled with uh, the thoughts of, of Rene Girard, which is another writer on who kind mm-hmm. of covered this, the space of violence. Also the, you know, the idea that, you know, human desire is infinite and kind of how it, it propagates. I wonder, is there any overlap there or were they in conversation? Well, he, he doesn't really quote Girard, so I don't, I'm not even sure if you read it, but on the fact that Desire is infinite, yes, because of Augustine. I mean, <laughs> Del Noche was in his own way an Augustinian, and uh, he certainly uh, recognizes that there is this infinity uh, of human desire, which is what gets transposed into politics. He also talks about uh, the what he calls the bourgeois worldview. He thinks that one of the modern... Uh, One of the ways of describing modernity is in terms of this idea of happiness, right? Because, um, and he opposes it to the traditional idea of beatitude. Uh, Because the idea of beatitude was that human beings flourish if they, in some sense, conform to the order of being, of creation. There is a a certain order, a cosmic order, and that the problem of life is to uh, fit. I mean, to, to harmonize yourself with, with, with this. By the, the modern idea, which he calls the, the bourgeois idea, is this idea of worldly happiness. And basically, that the individual can multiply his or her experiences and achieve this kind of subjective emotional happiness, which is unrelated to any outside transcendent order. So you, you see the difference. But what he says is that in practice, uh, the Augustinian, uh, you know, restless heart, you know, that our heart is restless and will never be satisfied until it rests in God, gets transposed in this never-ending quest for more experiences, never-ending quest for more goods, you know, for more consumption. And, and, and so there is this kind of perverse mechanism by which uh, the, the, the the, he says the human being finds himself in the world without being asked for permission, and then he wants to get this infinite possession of the world. And, and again, um, well, of course, he disagrees. I mean, he thinks that this is not going to work, but that's where he sees the infinite desire at play in our society, in this kind of horizontal, secular transposition into a quest for greater and greater consumption, for greater and greater experience, vitality that you have to be more and more vital. And of course, sex is a, is the sphere in which this desire for perpetual novelty uh, expresses itself, for example. 
Yeah, I think what the ingredient that, that Gerard adds to this is, is obviously uh, mimesis, the idea that, you know, we we kind of borrow desire from the people around us. We kind of reflect each other's desires and uh, and that reaches a kind of an, an extremist. And uh, what you have at the moment is kind of the technological layer uh, on top of all of our desires. So as you know, maybe a hundred years ago, you would have, uh, you know, the, the maximum mimesic and mimetic desire ratchet that you could engage in was the one in your you know, small circle of people that you would see directly. Now you're kind of part of this uh, global mimetic apparatus where you compare yourself with with all the people in the world and all the people you have access to, you know, rich, famous, beautiful, you know, ex- extremes of desire, you know, people couldn't even imagine or dream of, of, uh, of levels of that, um, of, of striving to, to match those. Uh, so um, I think the, um, the problem that we have at the moment is that, you know, it's, it's it's easy to to get off the hedonic treadmill when desire is capped when you kind of reach the end of the desire trap and then you see okay the abyss still opens up in front of me and there's nothing really on the other side but now because the the promises and the levels and the directions that you could go you know just the degrees of freedom that you have with your desires are so infinite the the horizon is constantly receding and you you could you know you can always be on the hedonic treadmill there always is a promise of something better something more you know younger model of you know a better vacation a slimmer physique or whatever you know is interesting to that particular individual now also facilitated through through very sophisticated marketing algorithms where they they really know what you want um it's it it really is is hard to to get over that mountain, uh, if if you don't, you know, uh, if you don't realize at one point that you know I've been doing this for x x amount of years and and now it's time to get off, um, yeah, it's a it's it it feels like a more complicated mousetrap, I think. Yeah, no, I, that makes sense. I mean, there is a, like a mass manufacturing our desire, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, with, I mean, a, a very advanced uh, society with wants to manufacture desires because that's where you also sell stuff, right? <laughs> if you want to sell more stuff, you have to create the desire for that stuff. And so our society does excel at manufacturing desires. But, I mean, uh, we, know, we, 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 we do know that ultimately the deeper human desires are still there, right? There is still a deep desire for unity with other people. There is a still a deep desire for meaning. There is a, a deep desire for beauty in many forms. And to the extent that these desires have to be set aside to make space for all these uh, mimetic desires, as you call them, uh, that again generates alienation, right? Generates a, a new kind of alienation because people deep down, I think, they know that there is something missing. I mean, I, I'm pretty confident that they do. And that again, going back to this, you know, all the epidemics of depression, mental illness, uh, I think that is in part due to this uh, denial of the deeper desires, don't you think? Yes, yes. I think the the, the hard part about the deeper desires is that um, they're they're kind of um, contextual. Like, for example, if you you know, if if you have um, you know a, a multi generational family home where you you know have to take care of the, you know the elderly and you know they take care of your children, um, that's that's kind of a, a different type of context than, for example, now 
you know, we have the revealed preference of each having our own home and we, we all can afford to have our own home. We don't have to live with our grandparents. I think, you know, some people do move in back in with their parents, you know, for either, you know, as spiritual reasons or whatever reasons or, you know, monetary reasons, but it is, it seems to be like a, you know, in economics, you have this concept of revealed preference. This is, this tends to be what people want to do. They want to drift apart from each other. They want to, and then the problem is that, you know, like you said, you cannot reach beatitude. You cannot reach fit in those conditions because you're not made to live alone eating, I don't know, frozen TV meals every mm-hmm. night in a cubicle somewhere. Uh, so, but that's slowly, you know, it, it seems to be the thing that you want to do. It is kind of the revealed preference. And then people get stuck in that. And I think it's, it's, it's hard to go back because the problem is, you know, leaving the, the place where you can, you find beatitude, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice in living with, you know, people who are not your generation. This is just one example, you know, living with with elderly parents, taking care of them, things like that, which we've kind of slowly divested from as a culture. Uh, and those were things that people would find, you know, that those were worthy sacrifices where they would find that type of satisfaction in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. But now even the, um, even the circumstances where, you know, for example, you would go to the bakery to buy bread, no need, you know, first there was the supermarket, they had bread there. Now the bread comes to you, you know, all of the uh, places where you had that social friction, where you had to be sociable, where you had to, you know, cultivate the skills to actually interact with people, not, you know, not make them upset at you. You didn't want to have conflicts with your butcher because that's where the meat comes from. Things like that. Those skills are kind of out the window. And I feel like a lot of people are in a bit of a desperate point where they they don't have the resources to kind of bootstrap themselves back into a situation where they where they get to have all of that um, interaction. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's, it's, it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to see exactly one, what is wrong. You know, they just feel like, okay, I've been doing the things that they've told me to do and everyone else is doing them as well. There is also kind of this game theoretic problem there because if you want to be very friendly with your neighbor, but he thinks that you're just very creepy and he doesn't want to have anything to want to do with you, then that's going to be hard to, you know, be very, you know, a sociable and nice creature. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's quite a few levels to this. And it's uh, to, to, for me, it's very hard to see kind of how you you walk this back together if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I would say two things, though, that this is becoming more clear. I mean, you know, we are, I think, at the end of an era. Maybe we are more at the end of an era in the places where the era began, like the U.S., than we are in places that are still catching up, like, I don't know about Eastern Europe, but many places around the world are still becoming Americanized in the sense of that you just described. Uh, America really, for example, I mean, these trends were already visible in the 60s, right? I mean, and and if, in fact, one of the notches interesting things is that he was one of the first to notice that there was a new West, right? That the West after the 60s was different from the old Europe in, in which he grew up exactly for the reasons that you say. He calls it this process of disintegration. He says that there is a totalitarianism of disintegration, which is an interesting formula, I mean, that everybody has to become the atomic individual or you cannot live here. (laughs) And, uh, but now, as I was saying, the very fact that we can talk about it in a way that we could not have talked about it 20 years ago, still 20 years ago, we we were in the wake of the Cold War, the position which was freedom and democracy versus communism, 
and then with communism was over, the, the clash of civilization, you know, the end of history. Now people are, at least some people, are much more aware of, of this, of what happened, what happened from the last 50 years. And when usually in history, when you can start seeing in that respect and noticing this as a happen, often means that the, the end could, could be, could be approaching. The question is, how will the end take place? Of course, we don't know that. One could speculate that a lot of this infinite multiplication of experiences and consumption and was all based on depth. <laughs> it was all based on an environmental destruction, right? And that to the extent that both the, the financial burden and the environmental uh, constraints become unbearable, uh, we could hit against a material wall, for example. I don't know. I, I'm saying that this is perfectly possible. The other aspect, though, is that um, Del Noche emphasizes a lot also the uh, being a Christian Catholic philosopher that the Christ, Christians have to uh, become aware because uh, for a long time, the kind of a dominant attitude was that uh, we can baptize this trend in some sense, you know, that, you know, especially in the sexual sphere, there's always a thing that these things are inevitable, that, 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 that these things are just a consequence of technology and progress, and that so we have to adapt. While one has to say loud and clear, no, this is not enough. You know, with the, 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 from a Christian perspective, we know that the true desires are bigger, that, that humanity is greater than, than this. So there is both a possibility of a material hitting the wall and the possibility of uh, the church stepping up and doing its job, which the Nature says is not to conform to the world, but to protest, <laughs> to, 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 to protest the world, to say, to, to contest, to contest, to say, no, I mean, this is, this idea of happiness is not adequate. It's not going to make anybody happy. Um, so these things, Maybe the two things that get sent into the machine, you know, they 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 they, they stop the process. But as I said, the very fact that we're talking about it, I think, is a sign that things are starting to change. Perhaps. Yes, I mean, there's definitely a, a growing subculture <laughs> of, of people talking about these uh, these problems, um, and I feel like. Um, it's you know it's it's very hard to say okay you know who done it what what exactly was it that uh, that kicked off the the, the issues um, but uh, it's it's definitely um, one of the big topics now and I feel like a lot of people are are, are trying to find solutions that are. Um, a bit fragmented. For example, there are people, you know, trying to re-engage with localism. Uh, you know, they're trying to, uh, I don't know, be self-sustaining as well. And, you know, they're also trying to approach the eco angle on this. Uh, like you said, you know, the environmental angle is important as well. I mean, it's been kind of traditional on the right, at least in the last 30, 40 years to not really engage with the eco angle because it was so dominated by the left. Uh, but, you know, the, the material world is finite. It is true that uh, you know at at one point things will uh, will stop working, uh, and the interesting part about um, kind of this the conversation on this this new right, so called new right, is that you know these uh, you know capitalism isn't necessarily seen as um, you know like this uh, 
kind of almost historicist force that we're going, is going to pull us out of any any problems. You know, there there might be problems without any solution. So I think it's it's much more realistic and much more engaged with with actual uh, problems like um, you know uh, environmental despoiling and and all of that. So I think that's that's an important uh, part of this as well. Um, yeah, what what the solution is going to be is is a is a hard one, and that's uh, that's one that I'm trying to slowly piece 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 out for myself and for whoever's listening to this. Um, uh, but like you said, it's probably going to be revealed to us rather than something predicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it will involve uh, ideas for sure. I mean, because that, that's the thing that, you know, the last 50 years, uh, this scientific kind of model has kind of pushed us towards interpreting everything in sociological terms, right? That, 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 there is a tendency to think that philosophy doesn't matter. You know, that, that, that the sexual revolution was because of the pill, for example, or because women got to work, or uh, the you know, larger things that ideas do matter. And, and so that in some sense, what, what this solution will involve is a rediscovery of uh, certain ideas the idea for example that you know it talks about uh, of the invisible that that, that that the mystery the idea of the transcendent uh, the fact that you know there is something mysteriously flawed about human beings you know the doctrine of the fall I mean a sense of limits of politics a sense of there are many many things that have been lost and need to be retrieved in the realm of ideas. But it cannot just be done by the philosophers. You know, I mean, it must be as a call to, to uh, it's more important to talk, say, about beauty, about architecture, about uh, educating the children, about things that relate to experience and bring back the eternal ideas through people's experience, right? And, uh, and, and this is why politics, in some sense, can only play a subsidiary role. I mean, politics can help, but the, the important thing is to have places and communities in which the deeper desires, the deeper human questions are an object of con- con- conversation and experience. You know, the old notion of, uh, of because we live in a very abstract world, you know, the, the, what, all we described about, you know, is very abstract. Then people, if people compare with their experience, they know that the idea of sexuality on JQ or GQ or Vogue or Maxim is not going to make anybody happy. You know, I mean, they know it. But in order to sell, in order to create this artificial desire that we discussed, one has to detach people from their experience. You know what I mean? From their self-reflective comparison with their heart, with their interiority. And so I think the single most important thing is to have places and people in which we learn again to compare things with our humanity, with our heart. And then the false desires will be exposed <laughs> and, 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 the, and, and the truer desires will emerge. Now, that may sound generic and maybe, but I think it's the only possibility. It must happen that way. It is not something that politics can produce. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it must happen uh, at the level of a, of a reconnection with the body as well, and kind of having that embodied existence. Um, you know, it, this this also sounds a bit trite, but you know, just you know, doing things with your hands uh, is as is, is, is grounding as anything. You know, maybe having a relationship with nature, having a small garden, or growing tomatoes in your backyard. You know? <laughs> exactly, it <laughs> that, sounds that, that, that that's real. <laughs> it brings you back in touch with reality, which is really what we need. Exactly. Uh, you know, clear feedback mechanism. If you don't water them, they don't grow. Uh, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, a cyclical nature to it. It's not all, you know, uh, the graph goes up, uh, you know, it's, it's not progressive. It's, it's, it's got, um, you know, it's gotten the, the whole of, of reality built into it, all of these processes. And I think, you know, gardening, agriculture, all of this stuff, you know, it's, uh, it, it kind of pulls you back back into reality uh, but you know what's um what's very heartening to me is that i feel that the failures of the current regime are becoming very clear to many people yes that's what i was you know, that's what i was trying to say earlier when i said that we are at the end of an era when people start to realize that they were sold a defective bill of good you know Exactly. It's, it's starting to, you know, uh, you know, Adam Smith said that there's a, a, a lot of ruin in a nation. Um, you know, I feel like we're, we're kind of slowly scraping the bottom of the barrel in many ways. And you see uh, problems happening in reality. You know, the, the, the bridges won't hold. The wars are not won. Uh, something, you know, there's a lot of um, money is not enough of an insulation. Even money is fake as you can see by all of the inflation that we're dealing with, you know, whoever is causing it, um, all of this, it, it, there's not an infinity of wealth that, that you can run on. And I feel like a lot of people, especially um, more smart people, people who have aspirations to be elite are slowly turning from this creed, you know, which, which is, which has been kind of the elite creed for, for a long time and looking for something else, something that also has an element of the transcendent. Um, you know, there's uh there's kind of been a resurgence in, in all sorts of different, you know, traditional Catholics abound. There's all sorts of things that are, that are um, kind of um, becoming more high status, I think, uh, for a lot of people. And I think that's, uh, that is a very good thing because a lot of these things tend to trickle down. A lot of these ideas, like, uh, like you said, uh, because ideas do have consequences, they are adopted by a counter elite first. And then that counter elite tends to uh, influence uh, a constituency or has, you know, client constituency. And, and from that, that's where it trickles down from. So I'm absolutely the notion emphasizes that, you know, secularization has not been a process of denying faith or religion. It's been a process of denying the religious questions, right? Of denying that you have to ask certain questions. And, and, and that's what makes totalitarianism is to deny, to forbid questions. So accordingly, the, the, the biggest revolution is to ask questions again. You know, if you start asking questions again, you're on the way out of the of the pit, you know. What I mean, the, and including religious questions. And I see there are more and more people asking questions. So I think that's a, that's a hope. Yes, yes, it is very hopeful. So um, hopefully, this is this is one of the places where where people ask questions. I ask questions on this show. Um, I want to ask you the question of the show. This is a question that everyone gets, and uh, I should have let you know that this is a question everyone gets. But it's sometimes it's good to be surprised. Um, do you have a subversive thinker, a uh, which is maybe not Augusto del Noche, because I know you definitely endorse his views, um, someone who might be tied into the thought of del Noche, someone who think is underrated or people would, would benefit from, from reading more of? 
Yeah, well, you know, when I grew up, I was very much influenced by the thought of Monsignor Giussani, the Italian theologian. Uh, Luigi Giussani was an Italian priest, and he started the Catholic movement, which I've been involved for many years. But apart from that, he was, he was an author. He wrote books, and uh, I would recommend his most famous book. is called The Religious Sense, which is all a book about the fact that religious questions, <laughs> that, 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 that uh, human beings uh, are not this uh, very highly evolved animals that will be happy with uh, a list of goods, you know, food, sex, housing, cars, vacations, but that deep down to be human is to have an infinite desire, to have an infinite question. I, I think that's the most sub subversive thing to say, in a sense, isn't it? I mean, yeah, at, at this point in history, um, I, just a, kind of an associated question. Was there any point in your life where uh, you f kind of faltered in your faith or had any any doubts uh, in, in your faith? Well, as Ratzinger, Dan Kadian Ratzinger wrote a book called Introduction to Christianity, which I highly recommend. It's one of the classics of the 20th century. And in the first chapter, I think he says that uh, both the, the believer and the atheist share in the in the the fight with doubt. I mean, if you did not raise the question, if you did not have a doubt in a good way, not in a negative way of being a skeptic, calling into question everything, but in the question of recognizing that life is mysterious and God is mysterious, and that we ultimately see through a glass darkly, as St. Paul says, then you have not taken your faith seriously. So uh, the, 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 the struggle with doubt is part of faith. It's not the negation of faith, but it is part of faith because you have to take a stand. You know what I mean? Uh, faith includes, it's not like, oh, two, is, two plus two equals four, fine, I'm done. No, faith is struggling with, like Jacob struggling with the angel, you know, and that's where doubt takes a positive meaning. If you talk in a sense of really having trouble believing, I think last time was when I was a teenager. But uh, what is clear is that every minute of our life, we we face the struggle with the mystery that we don't see. You know, that's part of it. That's part of the journey. It's not against the journey. Yes, that's a that's a, a wonderful way of putting it. And on that uh, on that very. Um Kind of in inspiring note. I'm I'm going to to end our conversation, but I want to also direct people again to uh to the uh, translated books that you've uh, you've put out, um the crisis of modernity, the age of secularization, and the latest one, the the problem of athe atheism. Thank you very much. I will say, read them in that order because the last one is the hardest one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the first one is the one that I put together to introduce people to the noche. So I would recommend the crisis of modernity as the entryway. Okay, perfect. That's that's how I started. So that's that's perfect. Uh, and you are also on Twitter. Is there any other platform that people should uh, should go to 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 find your work? No. Not really. I, I do write articles here and there, but if I write something, I will advertise it on Twitter. So you, you will know. Okay, perfect. I'll link that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Carlo. Well, thank you for having me. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, 
and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 